I am joined by Vivica Ellis, Interim Director of the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition. Vivica, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me today. I know the Premier is likely going to get questions about this a bit later on this afternoon when he speaks, uh, in about 20 minutes from now. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, about uh, the cutting of COVID relief, uh, COVID-19 relief payments? Uh, these were payments and increased payments to some of the lowest income British Columbians. Yes. So at the height of the pandemic, our provincial government um, decided to um, implement a $300 supplement to the income and disability rates um, for all those um, on that on those incomes. And um, uh, it was announced on Tuesday um, that um, <clears throat> 150 will be clawed back as of January for January, February and March. So this is really a, a very wrongful move on the part of our, our government at this time. Um, the $300 supplement has meant so much um, to some of the, 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 the families and individuals living the furthest below the poverty line um, in British Columbia. They've been able to access um, the chicken and spinach um, and the food that they need. We've heard from community members they've been able to buy winter coats and boots for their children when otherwise they wouldn't have been able to. Um, so clawing back the 150 as of January is, is really um, plunging some of our, our families and individuals in the greatest depths of poverty further into poverty in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, so we're advocating for government to reverse that move um, keep the 300 and further raise the rates to the poverty line um, at, uh, at the budget when it happens in March and April. And from what I understand too, so the clawing back uh, to 150 a month in January and then as, it, as it's planned out right now, uh, is it supposed to be the subsidy will be gone completely uh, after March? We don't have a definitive answer on that. Um, so we will have to see. I mean, what I can to speak to that, what I can say is that um, community groups, people who are living on income assistance and disability assistance, will be bringing their experiences of what it was like to actually have that extra 300 to government over January and February and March. Uh, we'll be having a series of meetings with the minister, um, potentially the premier's office, as many people as we could possibly talk to, um, to, to really um, <clears throat> advocate um, to 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 raise the rates further um, up to the market basket measure. I think the reality is um, we have legislated targets and timelines to reduce poverty in British Columbia. And we have a very robust poverty reduction strategy in place called Together BC. Now, our goals are to reduce child poverty 50% by 2024. That's legislated. And adult poverty 25% by 2024. So given the existing mandate of government um, and what the pandemic has revealed about the power of providing um, a strong social safety net that catches us all, um, we're really calling for the durable long-term income supports and investments that are long overdue in this province to really strengthen our social safety net um, and meet those legislated targets and timelines that we have in place. Uh, what do you say to some of the arguments uh, coming from government or some of the ministers saying that even with the clawback of this benefit, that because the uh, NDP is coming through with the one-time tax-free benefit, so that's the, the payment that people can start applying for, I think, in about three days, uh, the $1,000 for families or up to $500 for singles, uh, that that could actually put people ahead? Well, this is the thing. We, we need to not be sort of distracted um, by smoke and mirrors here. The BC Recovery Benefit is a one-time, really flash-in-the-pan benefit 
Um, it will stimulate the economy, but it isn't the kind of long-term dur- durable income supports investment that we need to make um, to strengthen our social safety net. So no other British Columbian is, has to experience a reduction in income in order to um, benefit from the BC recovery benefit. Um, so why, you know, we need to, we do not need to claw back $150 from 200,000 of the, the poorest people in British Columbia um, to, just for them to be able to access a BC recovery benefit, which is something that every British Columbian um, has a right to access. So when you do the math, um, you know, $1.7 billion for a BC recovery benefit um, and a very small, very insignificant savings from rolling back that 150 but that supposed savings, um, the long-term public health, public health outcomes are immense. I mean, we're plunging people who are below the poverty line, further below the poverty line. Um, so it simply isn't fair um, to take $1 from, from these British Columbians in the middle of the pandemic at this time. Uh, is it frustrating for you that with the benefit, and again, it is being used as kind of the, the counter argument, but is it frustrating that there will be people that will qualify for this benefit because it's based on 2019 tax returns? It really has nothing to do with what's happened to people during the pandemic. There will be people who don't actually need the money. And at the same time, this benefit benefit for people who are below the poverty line is being clawed back. Well, precisely. Um, there are some problems with the BC recovery benefit. Um, the fact that it's based on 2019 is extremely problematic. Um, so, And for those on income and disability assistance, one of the things that we have already spoken to the ministry about um, is not requiring them to go and apply online. Um, because that that application is really about discovering people's incomes and then determining how much of the BC recovery benefit they are entitled to. But for those on income and disability assistance, they are already in our system. We already know what their incomes are. Um, and the, the pandemic has very much deepened the, the digital divide. So to ask people who are already barriered, um, who may not have access to the Internet or access to the tech, to go and fill out another long, complicated form is a barrier. Um, so not only that, we're really concerned. We understand the ministry is going to provide an alternative application in January um, for those who don't have a bank account or don't have a social insurance number to make sure they can access the BC recovery benefit. Um, but what you say is, um, and that's very important, um, because the barriers to access mean that, that many um, could potentially not benefit when, when they really should be able um, to, to benefit from it. Um, but this is the piece, is that... You know, why this is spread out so far and wide across uh, the variation in income in British Columbia. Um, and at the same time, we would try to, you know, save by clawing back income from those who are in the greatest depths of poverty, the people who have to spend hours every week accessing food banks, um, just in survival mode. Um, it's, 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 it's a very wrong-headed public policy. Um, and, um, and, you know, we're, we, we focus on, we really advocate for the long-term, durable, evidence-based public policy solution that we know are going to have a long-term impact on this province. So the BC Recovery Benefit, um, it is, it is a flash-in-the-pan, one-time measure, um, and, and to, to, to claw back and, and not invest um, in our durable supports at the same time is, is really something that needs to be reevaluated and reversed. All right. Well, we will leave it there while we are uh, anticipating the Premier will be asked about this during uh, his news conference. Vivica, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. 
Thank you very much for having me. And a lot of businesses are expecting that things will get better in 2021. And joining me to talk more about the findings is Greg Davignon, the president and CEO of the Business Council of BC. Thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, I know the group uh, surveyed uh, some of BC's bigger businesses. How, how many businesses and, and what size were they? Well, uh, the Business Council is an organization made up of the 250 largest and leading firms in the provincial economy. And so we surveyed our membership uh, across the economy. So this survey is representative of how the BC economy works. And 50 decision makers from that survey uh, informed the results that we've got today. And it gives a bit of a glimpse into what we expect for BC's economy in 2021. Uh, To give some context, Jill, uh, large businesses in BC, um, there's about 500, just over 500,000 businesses generally, but large businesses make up only 2% of uh, the number of businesses, but 45% of all the private sector employment in BC. And what uh, what was the general feeling, if you can uh, break it down to that, or, or what were some of the responses? Yeah, we, we canvassed uh, large employers on a number of different issues uh, around the economy, around investment intentions, around employment intentions, and their confidence in economic policies, as well as uh, one thematic uh, that we tested around ESG, which is, what are you doing as a business around reporting on environmental, social, and governance outcomes to make uh, the economy better and, and people better going forward? But overall, uh, there's a, uh, a feeling among those that responded that there's uh, going to be a slightly better economic outcome in BC's economy for next year. About 40% of um, those surveyed felt that it would be slightly better or much better. So a bit of a, a tepid response and recognizing that we are in the midst of the biggest economic recession in a century. We expect that uh, while we've had some good news in the last little while for job growth, um, we and we will see about 4 to 4.5% growth next year, we're coming out of a massive hole of 65 to 7% this year. Uh, did the business weigh, businesses weigh in, or was there any discussion of uh, about their response and what it was like in BC compared to, say, even other provinces or other countries, such as, say, Australia, where they went into full lockdown and, and did that real uh, hard pain to get that gain quicker? Well, we've uh, canvassed those kinds of questions in previous surveys. We didn't in this survey, but uh, it factors into the sentiment that business leaders that employ a huge number of British Columbians are thinking about, and what are they going to do going into 2021 in terms of where they invest their capital and where they uh, uh, rehire or hire new people going forward. And what we've found in the survey is that there's less capital available in the global marketplace today, so there's more competition for less money. And in that context, what we found is that, uh, generally speaking, the participants in the survey uh, found that there's really kind of a slight increase of intention of investment in Canada generally, and a very slight increase in employment uh, prospects in terms of hiring new people going forward. And what they're worried about is that um, we don't quite have the right mix right now in provincial economic policies to attract investment to uh, hire people, and that stems from 
you know, the fact that we have complicated regulatory processes. So one of the requests in the in the poll or the sentiments in the poll was make regulatory processes simpler and more efficient. And as places like Australia and other parts of the world have done, make it very clear that we're a place that should be invested in uh, to create economic growth and hiring. And do you see the government doing that, or do you, would you like to see more focus put on that? Well, the respondents clearly would like to see far more uh, focus put on that going forward. To give you some context, in 2019, before the pandemic, BC had robust economic growth of 2.7% compared to the rest of the country. Now, 2.7% over the last 30 years is about average economic growth. But what uh, is quite telling is that of that 2.7% growth, Jill, over 2% of it came from large private sector projects, uh, LNG Canada, TMX, and, and uh, other industrial projects like office towers, and, uh, and, and investments in the port. And so uh, if we hadn't had that private sector investment going forward, we would have had about a half to two-thirds of 1% growth, which was far below the 1.8% in Canada. And so it's really important to send signals to capital markets to say, look, you can invest here and get a rate of return, but in doing so, it creates employment, it drives innovation, it reduces our emissions from a climate perspective, and makes us an overall more comprehensive and competitive economy. And that's the other thing that we tested in this poll around ESG. And talk a bit more about ESG, if you can, Uh, environment, social, governments, uh, these principles, and how they factor into this. Well, I mean, the thinking in business and generally has changed over the years, probably three decades. We've been doing this in British Columbia for some, some time around how do we sustainably operate on the land base? And it used to be uh, then morph into a decade ago around corporate social responsibility. What are you doing to improve the communities within which you operate? But there's been a massive change and massive uh, velocity of change happening in the last 24 to 36 months. And it's being driven largely by large pools of capital globally. And in that context, um, these firms, now under the UNPRI, it's called, have committed to uh, investing in firms that report on their environmental impacts, their social impacts, and the way that they govern themselves. So it has implications for everything from diversity and inclusion, about how you show up in the community to lift up those that are uh, highest at risk, and, and a social purpose in that community, and then also how are you managing your environmental footprint and the sustainability of your supply chain and the way that you business. And what we found through the survey is that 90% of BC companies surveyed uh, either are or plan to incorporate ESG measurement in their practices and planning going forward for 2021 and beyond. And 49% of them are currently reporting some degree of sustainability within the ESG. And why it matters is that BC has a material opportunity to be a global recipient of over $100 trillion of that ESG capital coming into businesses that drive innovation, that create new jobs, and that ultimately enable us to be more competitive uh, going forward. Uh, One of the other numbers that uh, kind of stuck out uh, for me was uh, here we are today, we're talking about vaccine arriving in Canada, we're talking about this light, albeit there's still uh, quite a road to go before we get there, but positive news when it comes to fighting this pandemic and seeing a way out of this pandemic. Uh, But in this survey, uh, still, you did have uh, firms uh, saying uh, 20% said that they expect the economy will be slightly worse in 2021. 
2021, and 16% saying that they expect it will be much worse. Was there reasoning given as to why there is that number that, that expect things to get worse? Well, the, pan, uh, the pandemic and the virus itself has been indiscriminate, and it's impacted, obviously, individuals, but also sectors of the economy uh, much more than some other sectors of the economy. And some, in fact, some sectors of the economy are growing and thriving right now. If you're in the technology, professional services, um, uh, manufacturing, public health care, agriculture, you've actually seen some growth during the pandemic. Um, and, and clearly, it's great news that in a short period of time, vaccines are being developed around the world. There's another 10 in, in stage three trials aside from the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine uh, that are imminent. But in the context of that, we also have a period of probably nine months of the transition. As people get vaccinated, we're going to have to continue to have some constraints on the way that we uh, lead our lives and run our businesses going forward. And and if there are uh, a third wave of transmission that could happen, in the absence of rolling out the vaccine or continued practices, it could have a dampening effect on the global economy, which then has a knock-on impact on BC businesses. And were there businesses or in one particular sector, like you said, everybody's been impacted by this, but was there one particular type of business that was worse off or had more of a negative or kind of worrisome tone looking forward? Yeah, I think there's two ways to look at it. The sectors that have been hardest hit are accommodation and food services, uh, tourism, which includes the way that Statistics Canada represents the data around recreation and culture, as well as uh, some areas of construction. Um, the areas that have, have had limited impact, as I said, were around professional scientific services, manufacturing, forest mining, and agriculture going forward. But also uh, because of the, what we call the consumer-facing businesses, those are retailers, uh, restaurants, um, entertainment venues, arts and culture. Um, there's a, a large component part of the economy in BC that is resident in Metro Vancouver. So we've seen job losses far greater in Metro Vancouver and Victoria than we have, for example, in the Fraser Valley and in, in uh, other regions actually we've seen job growth. Again, coming back to if we can create certainty or investment, large projects, uh, natural resources, agriculture, manufacturing outside the lower mainland have actually been growing during this period of time. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Interesting survey results. Uh, Greg Davignon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much and uh, best of the season to you and all your listeners. It's a new report has been released uh, called A Parent's Duty, Government's Obligation to Youth Transitioning into Adulthood. And Dr. Jennifer Charlesworth is with us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me, Jill. Uh, it's, it's a lengthy report. I wanted to go through some of the highlights. What have you found as far as that role of government, where perhaps government is lacking, uh, where we need improvement? And, uh, well, what, what have you found with this report? Mm-hmm. Well, our view is that when government takes on the responsibility to be the parent of a young person under the Child, Family, and Community Services Act and raise them up to age 19, they have a duty or a parental obligation past the age of majority at 19. So this report really tries to present a compelling argument, both on moral and ethical grounds, but on the basis of research and the economics of it, for government to continue to provide different kinds of supports to young people, much as our families provide to us when we turned 19. 
Because that seems to have, it's always been one of the big questions is that it's difficult enough for somebody, even if you come from a very supportive household, if you were set out on your own at age 19, a lot of people would find that extremely difficult, uh, let alone somebody who's perhaps been in foster care and is one of uh, the more vulnerable members of the population. Exactly, Jill. That's exactly right. And I think it's just so important that we take a step back and reflect on the kinds of supports that we received when we were a young adult. And, you know, when things didn't go quite well, there were people that could help us and guide us through that. And now imagine what it would feel like to be facing down your 19th birthday. And there is no celebration to be had because you're going to lose your housing, your social connect, your connections with uh, caring adults. Uh, In many cases, your um, opportunity to have food security, supportive education, that kind of thing. So for many young people, it's a very scary time. Uh, the number that's in the report as far as how many young people we're talking about, uh, 850 young people who transition out of government care uh, every year in this province. I, I mean, relatively speaking, uh, based on population, that's not a huge number, but that is a lot of people, it seems, that would be in that position. Yes, absolutely. And I should say government uh, in British Columbia has done a good job and the ministry has done a good job of actually reducing the number of young people that are in care and transitioning into adulthood by virtue of creating extended family supports and other out-of-care options. So that's good news. But nonetheless, 850 children, uh, young people that transition into adulthood, they're important members of our community too, and we shouldn't abandon them at such a critical developmental stage in their lives. Uh, What about the issue of post-secondary and the work that has been done with this current government as far as helping youth that are transitioning out of care be able to access and get post-secondary education? Well, I would say this is a bright spot. We feature that. The tuition waiver program has certainly been very beneficial to many young people. I think a thousand young people have benefited from that. Um, And there is an agreement with the Young Adults Program that's also helpful for a number of young people, although the majority of young people um, leaving care are not able to access that. So there are some strengths. But the reality is that many young people in our community and in our families are not ready to go on to post-secondary right away. And it's even more so for young people that have been raised in care because of what's happened to them. Uh, They are not quite ready to move into a trade or or post-secondary. So providing that bridging or transitional support until they are able to participate in the post-secondary is another aspect of this. Uh, I wanted to go through some of the recommendations in this report as well. Uh, So when it talks about extending or improving transition planning and starting that planning at age 14, how much of a difference do you think that would make to start doing that much earlier? Well, you know, I have spoken with hundreds and hundreds of young people in the course of this job and, and of course, in my past as well. And so many young people say, that they did not have anybody that had conversations with them about how they can prepare themselves for adulthood. So I think that being very intentional about it and saying, actually, it's really important that we work with young people and alongside young people to help them get some basic life skills. Um, So I think it will make a difference. And for those young people that have had that happen for them, it's 
been very significant to be able to approach young adulthood with a little less fear and a little more hopefulness. Um, But for too many young people, literally, they are, you know, approaching 19. They still don't have an idea what's going to happen to them after they they turn 19. Do we know the numbers then on uh, young people that when they turn 19 or how many people in this uh, in this group end up being homeless? Yeah, we don't have exact numbers. And in fact, what we often learn is when um, research is done amongst the homeless population, if one of the questions that is asked is, did you ever have an in-care experience? You know, if you were, were you ever in care? Um, a significant number uh, will say yes. So sometimes it's 30%, sometimes it's as much as 60% of, of uh, people who are living homeless uh, or housing unstable will say that they had an in-care experience. So it's more retrospective. One of the things we have been uh, encouraging and one of our recommendations is that we actually get a bit more proactive and build a relationship with a young person as they leave care and touch in with them every so often so that we can see what has actually happened, what's helpful, what's not been helpful what is it that you need now? So that would give us much better data than what we have right now. But certainly, I would say, you know, a third to half of people that are experiencing homelessness are have experiences in care. And if we only look at this, say, from a financial point of view, would it be more cost effective to continue supporting somebody beyond the age 19, age of 19 rather than, and again, only looking at money, not suggesting that it's that money's the only thing at play, but it seems like it would be a better system if we, if we invested more uh, and continued past when somebody turns 19 than having to deal with all the, the possible downfalls, uh, medical, mental health and issues that could arise if we don't. Exactly. I Yes, exactly. And that's one of the, the arguments that we make. There was some excellent research done a few years back that costed out the um, expanded measures, post-majority supports against the costs of not doing that. So basically it suggested uh, back in 2016 when the report was done by Fostering Change that If there was an implementation of a basic package of supports to young adults up to age 25, it would cost about $57 million, but it would actually save the government up to $180 million a year because you're saving, just as you say, on health, mental health, uh, criminal justice involvement, people not being able to participate in the labor force, homelessness, and police activity, etc., uh, I know there have been similar reports uh, like this in the past. What would you like uh, as far as an immediate response from government or what should be perhaps the first thing that you would like to see done? Mm-hmm. Well, there are some things that can be done right now without an infusion of additional resources. Um, and that is really focusing in on how could work be done with the young people, with foster caregivers, with staff uh, um, service workers, and with the guardianship workers to improve the transition planning. Number one, start that, make an effort, uh, make a stronger effort. I'm not saying that people aren't making an effort, but make a stronger effort and make that happen. I think then the other thing that I'd like government to recognize is that this is not just the Ministry of Children and Family Development's problem. It's actually something that requires a whole-of-government response, mental health, health, 
public uh, social development and poverty reduction, and to immediately move forward on the uh, review of these recommendations to think what would be some short-term options that would start to move the system towards the ideal outcome. All right, so we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thank you for your interest. Take care, Jill. Well, during his news conference uh, just over an hour ago, the Premier was asked about the reduction of the benefit to people on disability here in B.C. and whether or not there is going to be a permanent increase in the new budget. The answer was a lot of word soup. It took about two minutes. There was no real answer. He was pushed on it again and said that he felt he did answer the question, saying that he's only one person at the Cabinet table, but he hopes that will be in the budget. So not really the answer people we're looking for. But what does this mean for people who have been depending on that increase in the benefit? Well, Helene Boyd joins me now, co-executive director of Disability Alliance BC. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Uh, What are your thoughts on this? So not really a concrete answer today. We are going to see the COVID-19, the bump up benefit clawed back. Uh, The premier was asked uh, this question. Uh, Rob Shaw asked him, why is it this one particular group is asking to take or being forced to take a claw back when no other group is seeing this happen? What are your thoughts on how that's unfolded? Yeah, and uh, Premier Horgan's response to that was, well, they're getting a net positive because they're also receiving the $500 individual um, recovery benefit as well, um, which, sure, yeah, that, that is a, a recovery benefit that's um, provided to anyone who's eligible across the province, but it's not necessarily equitable because it's still requiring people with disabilities to apply, um, and that's another barrier for them to access that funding. It's also temporary, um, and as he had mentioned, that he's hoping to make an increase in income assistance and disability assistance in the upcoming budget in the spring. That's not a confirmation. And so this reduction from the $300 crisis supplement to $150 um, recovery benefit supplement uh, is affecting people right here and now. Uh, and there is no confirmation that following these three months of this um, $150 monthly supplement that there will be an increase for them to look forward to. So that's really the responsibility of organizations like Disability Alliance BC to lobby to the BC government and ensure that that's included in an upcoming budget. And I know there's been some concern as well, even with the $300 bump up, it still doesn't really get people even above the poverty line. Uh, Are you concerned that, that if this was in the budget, it would make sense that you would just leave it alone and leave it where it is, knowing that it's going to become something permanent down the road. Are, are you concerned at all that even if there is a bump up in the budget, it's not going to be as much? That's, how, that's what we need to make sure during the budget consultation phase, that whatever this increase is, is enough. Because organizations like Disability Alliance BC have been advocating um, since even before COVID for an increase in disability assistance. And once the $300 crisis supplement was included earlier this year, um, we've been advocating for that to be made permanent and like included within the disability assistance payment and as well as indexed for inflation because the disability assistance um, income, monthly income is not indexed for inflation. So it's reducing purchasing power for people who need it the most. 
Are there still issues as well, or, or do you have concerns with the, the, the raising of this? If, in fact, it is made permanent, if there's some bump up of the benefit, is there still the issue with the clawback for people that do work part-time or do have some income that that it, it almost is like it doesn't, it, it's, it's not an incentive to work if your money's just going to be clawed back? So the, the COVID um, benefits, like the recovery benefit, uh, CERB, um, the recovery supplement, th- those are all exempt income for people on disability assistance and income assistance, so it's not clawback dollar for dollar. Um, so there, there isn't a concern for that, but it's just mainly the concern that the current rate of $1,183, the basic amount that people on disability assistance get, is under the poverty line, uh, and, and that there needs to be major overhauls regardless of the current COVID situation, but that obviously this current COVID situation we find ourselves in means uh, that there are going to be higher rates for daily living going forward. And how much of a difference, I know we've been hearing some examples from people, but how much of a difference does it make going from 300 to 150? Yeah, so from from some of the people that uh, I've met through Disability Alliance BC who are on disability assistance, because one of our programs uh, that we operate is advocacy for uh, applying for disability assistance. And, and they've said that, you know, this this reduction is means that they have to, therefore, somehow reduce their living expenses, but they're already using every dollar that they have to, to get by in the province. So it is almost nigh impossible for them to then, especially like the Christmas season, to be told this, that they're, they're going to receive following next, like in next year, that there's going to be a, a half reduction of what they're going to receive. It's it's not it's not something that people are looking forward to and it's not necessarily something that they can adapt to. Uh, if you had to pick or were able to pick what a permanent bump up would look like, is there a number that you think would be a reasonable number? Uh, I wouldn't give an exact number right now, but what I would say is that what the Government of Canada currently uses for uh, assessing the poverty line is called the market basket measure and that uh, assesses uh, daily uh, living items uh, and and how much people need in order to access those basic daily items. Uh, And that's around $20,000 per individual in the province of BC. Um, And and it's to make sure that people on disability assistance, that they're able to receive above the poverty line of that, so above $20,000 annually, because the $1,183 times 12 is like around 14,000 something dollars. So it's not, it's below the market basket measure. And while there are income exemptions, uh, so a person who is on disability assistance, they can do, they can make up to $15,000 a year starting next year um, to, as an exemption from the amount that they receive. Um, And, but that also means that not everyone can uh, work uh, if they're on disability because their disability restricts it. So there are a lot of people who are on disability assistance that fully rely on that $1,183 to get by. All right. Well, uh, Helene, we'll leave it there for today uh, and see what happens next with this. But thank you so much for joining us uh, to respond to uh, the Premier's comments and to what's happening. Thanks, Jill. All the best. All right, you too.
Well, there has been courtroom drama. There have been tears. Uh, there have been a lot of twists and turns at the Meng Wanzhou extradition battle, which, as you know, has been playing out in a courtroom in Vancouver. And Ian Young, who is the Vancouver correspondent with the South China Morning Post, has been there throughout this part of the case and joins us now to bring us up to date. Ian, thanks so much for being on the show today. That's no problem, Jill. How are you? Uh, very well. How about you? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, I I was a bit jealous because when I was used to be a reporter in the field, covering courts was one of my favorite beats to do. Sometimes it can be very boring. Uh, Sometimes it can be pretty exciting, though. And this one sounds like there were, in fact, a lot of twists and turns. Yeah, it's been actually a really amazing phase of the Meng Wanzhou uh, extradition hearings because uh, a lot of it previously has been devoted to some fairly dry arguments and procedural stuff. But um, over the past uh, over the past six weeks, really, we've we've seen a whole bunch of police and um, uh, Canada border agents uh, having to testify about how they handled Meng Wanzhou, what they did, and the purpose of of all this testimony from Meng's uh, point of view is to try to demonstrate uh, that she is the victim of an abusive process. And because of that alleged abusive process, she should be released. So we've seen some very dramatic moments. Uh, So walk us through some of those moments. Uh, Have they been coming as far as, uh, I know there's been members of the RCMP, uh, Border Service agents as well. What kinds of things have you witnessed uh, there covering this case? Yeah, well, the the general backdrop is uh, this attempt by Mung's lawyers to show that there was something untoward here, that the police and the border guards were uh, acting as agents of the uh, FBI to gather evidence. And so uh, we've seen, uh, for instance, we've seen uh, one senior border agent was reduced to tears uh, on the witness stand a couple of times as she was repeatedly challenged about the veracity of her recollections um, about about the treatment of Mung and and how her team dealt with her. Uh, We saw... um, um, uh, uh, one border agent admitting uh, to having made a heart-wrenching, his words, heart-wrenching mistake when he handed over um, uh, Meng Wanzhou's mobile phone passwords to the police, and that was a breach of her privacy. Um, that's an admitted bre- breach of her privacy rules. Uh, but we also had a very dramatic moment when a witness did not appear, and that was uh, an RCMP staff sergeant who was really at the centre of these claims because he was in communication with the FBI, uh, who refused to testify and uh, has lawyered up. And he actually ended up um, uh, working for a casino in the Chinese territory of Macau, and uh, the Canadian government lawyers who are now who, who, who have been representing American interests in the extradition case say that they fear for uh, this this former RCMP sergeant's safety now. Uh, that was one of uh, the stories uh, when that came out that I think a lot of people did a bit of a double take saying, doesn't that seem odd that we have a retired RCMP staff sergeant who was a part of this who's now working in a casino in Macau? Yeah, well, what happened was that this staff sergeant, actually, before he was involved in the Meng Wanzhou case, uh, before he had this job in the financial integrity unit of the RCMP in Ottawa, uh, he spent four years uh, living in Hong Kong and working in this elite group of, um, among this elite group of um, RCMP officers, the foreign liaison uh, unit of the RCMP, and he was basically the RCMP's man in, in, in Hong Kong. Uh, and presumably, that's uh, that's part of how he ended up uh, working for uh, this big casino company in Macau, uh, Galaxy Casino. So it's not actually that unusual of a career path. You know, a lot of police in Hong Kong 
end up working for uh, security uh, of for security positions in in the Macau casino industry, and that appears to be what's happened here. But of course, that's cast in an entirely different light now that he's wanted to to, to appear as a witness in Meng Wanzhou's extradition case. Right, because when you any time you hear that somebody is refusing to testify, for me, one of the the first questions is, well, why doesn't this person want to testify? What what does this person know? Yeah, well, certainly, I mean, uh, he is the subject of other litigation as well, civil litigations being brought by Meng Wanzhou. Uh, he's lawyered up, um, by which I mean that all of the other agents and officers involved in this case are represented by Canada's Attorney General. Uh, this officer, though, has chosen not to go down that path. Uh, ben Chang uh, has now got private um, uh, private representation. Uh, so at this point, then, this, this kind of phase of this case, uh, as you've written about uh, in, in the South China Morning Post, is, is finished uh, as far as the, the witness phase. What does that mean for the, the bigger picture on what happens and what we expect next? Yeah, well, I mean, the rest of the case, the rest of the extradition hearing is continuing until at least, you know, May next year. At least that's the schedule. But over, uh, overshadowing all of this, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we, of course, we had those reports in the Wall Street Journal, which were saying that uh, the Americans, um, the Department of Justice in, in the United States, was negotiating with Meng Wanzhou to strike a deal that would allow her to return home to China in exchange for um, uh, some sort of admission of wrongdoing under a deferred prosecution agreement. And what that means is that she would uh, somehow assist the, the, the Americans, you know, the Department of Justice, you know, admit wrongdoing, and at a later stage, the case against her, the fraud charges against her would be dropped. We don't know if that's uh, going to happen. Uh, this is what was reported by the Wall Street Journal. Um, but we haven't seen that mentioned in court yet. So so maybe we'll end up still talking about this in May. Maybe we'll still be here in a couple of years because there could be an appeal process and that could last you know, almost forever. Uh, right, because it does seem like when that Wall Street Journal report came out uh, and uh, it caused a lot, uh, there was a lot of attention paid to it, but it doesn't seem like there's been much follow-up or we've heard anything else on what might be happening there. Yeah, I mean, the case itself has to continue. I mean, it has to march on a pace because they've got a schedule and they've got court appearances and who knows if a deal is going to be struck. The Wall Street Journal reported that Mung herself was reluctant to sign up to this deal because it, she, didn't, she didn't think that she had done anything wrong. Now, um, her lawyers have refused to talk to me about this and, you know, the, and understandably so. This is something that's purely between Ms. Mung and, and the Department of Justice. But it also has to be said... Um, that you know the Chinese government probably wouldn't be very happy if Meng Wanzhou uh, started assisting the American Department of Justice because there's that whole geopolitical aspect that's overshadowing this as well, which is the, the, the Chinese contention that this whole case is an expression of American foreign policy and it is an expression of um, you know, America's trade war against China. Right. Uh, you also wrote uh, in your piece, uh, your latest piece on this, uh, before uh, you'd, you'd written about uh, Staff Sergeant or former Staff Sergeant uh, Ben Chang's role, uh, what he's doing. Uh, I found it interesting that the test of the testimony about uh, delaying uh, the arrest of Meng Wanzhou uh, until after she'd been in that immigration exam room, the the, uh, the interrogation, uh, because uh, the the constable that testified there, as you've written, said wasn't sure of what she was capable 
rubble of uh, had the arrest been made on the plane. That seemed like that. What was that like when that testimony was made? Yeah, that was with some really interesting moments. That was early on in the testimony of Winston Yep, who was actually the man who who uh, ended up and arrested Meng Wanzhou after the immigration exam. Uh, and he was sort of caught in a bit of a spot by um, Meng's lawyers, um, uh, Richard Peck, who pressed him on why why didn't they arrest Meng Wanzhou on the plane? Because the arrest warrant said that she should have been arrested immediately and it took more than three hours for the um, for the immigration exam to take place. Now, Winston Yep said that, well, you know, safety is always one of the considerations when you decide how and where and when you arrest someone. And he sort of raised this example of someone carrying a knife, for instance, and, you know, Richard Peck pounced on that and he said, well, you know, Meng Wanzhou has got on a plane. There are security measures when you get on planes. You didn't really expect Meng Wanzhou to be carrying a knife, did you? Um, and, you know, he was caught a bit flat-footed with that statement. So, you know, some really, really interesting moments in this case. Uh, there are, uh, for sure. Uh, thank you so much, Ian. I know you've been there uh, day in and day out covering this. Uh, and like you said, unclear uh, what's going to happen, uh, for being, uh, if there will be any other uh, kind of bombshells coming. But thank you so much for joining us and bringing us up to speed. No problem. Thank you, Jill. Well, it is that time of year again, although everything's a little bit different. People are still very busy, and perhaps you are finding yourself in the same scenario as many more things to mail because we aren't having the huge gatherings where you might be able to give somebody their gift in person. So instead, hey, you put it in the mail. The message from Canada Post, get those parcels mailed because things are only going to get busier during the next few days. Our show contributor, John Jang, spoke with Canada Post, a spokesperson over there, about the holiday season and what things look like. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. We're 10 days away. Christmas now just around the corner. And I would guess that while Santa's little elves in the North Pole are currently busy at work, Canada Post probably even busier than Santa's magical helpers because of all the unusual circumstances we faced here in 2020. Now, for more on that, we're actually joined by John Hamilton. He's the spokesperson for Canada Post based in Ottawa. And John, I'd imagine that this is a busy time for Canada Post on any regular year, but especially now because of COVID-19. It is incredibly busy this holiday season. Uh, Just give you a few numbers uh, on the weekend, we uh, were out delivering, um, and we do that really just to keep pace. Uh, we hit 1.1 million parcels delivered on the weekend. That was a record, and then we rolled into Monday with another record set with 2.3 million parcels delivered on that one day. And uh, we expect to continue, um, you know, through till Christmas, and that's been going on since early November. Do you get the feeling that enough Canadians realize they need to be sending in those parcels ASAP? maybe over the next couple of days, because with all this volume, uh, there's the chance that if you wait much longer than that, your delivery might not arrive until after Christmas Day. I'm certainly hopeful, and the reason I say that is, at first, we were out uh, at the beginning of October saying, start shopping and shipping early. It's going to be busy. Uh, We don't want to overwhelm the system, so um, do everything you can. And we started seeing um, the holiday shopping start a lot earlier than normal, and we started seeing the volume start to pick up. Um, a few other things have happened along the way, though. A lot of uh, communities or provinces as a whole 
have issued the lockdown measures or restrictions on family travel. So that's meant a lot more um, people coming to the post office with a box that packaged up with the gifts that they probably were hoping they could go deliver in person when they visited friends and loved ones. So we're seeing more of that. And also this year, we're seeing small and medium-sized businesses really shift to online sales. And, uh, you know, a lot of that comes through the post office. It comes through our uh, depots with pickups. So we're seeing growth kind of wherever you look, there is a growth in parcels this year. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, many things have changed with the way we live because of the global pandemic. But one thing that hasn't changed is the need for Canada Post as an essential service. Rain or shine, uh, those delivery agents are out there, sometimes on foot making sure we receive our mail. And um, I'm wondering, you know, have you heard from agents recently about what it's been like out in the public, maybe hearing the words thank you more frequently than they used to? All year long, and it's been truly remarkable. I, you, you take away the machinery and the plants and the buildings. Canada Post is a network of people, uh, and it's people that live in the community. They are proud to uh, serve the community, and they've continued that throughout the most difficult of circumstances all year round. Uh, we haven't skipped a beat. We knew we'd be relied on by Canadians. Uh, we're, we are glad to be in that position. And, uh, you know, we put our own safety measures in place. Uh, it's not, it, you know, it's obviously been stressful too, but we've been working through all of those issues just because we knew we had to be there for Canadians. And, uh, you know, when the volumes of parcels and when the increased mail started coming, um, we were able to respond. Uh, we, You know, earlier in the year, we did see um, some delays as we kind of got everything came at once. But our people have, have seen uh, notes uh, and drawings from children in the early stages. We also wrapped a few of our trucks um, in uh, in rainbows um, just to kind of emulate what we were seeing in the drawings and things like that from uh, from children as as our people were out delivering. And we get people honking and waving whenever those vehicles go by, taking selfies and just saying a thank you out the window. So it's been a truly remarkable year. And, and one of the neatest things was our employees on their own organized over 45 convoys of Canada Post vehicles to go around um, to the seniors' residences and the hospitals just to to uh, pay their respects to their fellow uh, frontline workers. So it, it's really been a, a remarkable year, and now we're just doing everything we can just to make it a, a good Christmas after after a very challenging year for everybody. I love hearing that. Uh, it's just a great story, as uh, we we know it's been a challenge for everybody this year, but uh, it's good to know that people are trying to do their part, and Canada Post also getting involved, saying thank you to our frontline uh, healthcare workers. Now, here's a really important question for you, John, because I am uh, I'm a procrastinator, and I'll admit, even when I was younger, I was a procrastinator. So for our younger listeners of CKNW, I'm sure they're wondering right now, some of them, is it too late to send a letter to Santa Claus. Never too late to write to Santa. Um, he reads them all before Christmas and he responds to them all. Um, you might be getting too late to get a reply before Christmas, but you know, do your best. There's always some Santa magic there. But he does read them all because it's very important for the uh, his naughty nice list. Uh, but at the same time, he uh, uh, he does respond. And I know even when he takes a little time after Christmas, he never stops writing letters back to children. He loves that. Never too late. Santa will love everything. Thank you so much. That is John Hamilton, spokesperson for Canada Post in Ottawa. And John, happy holidays. Thanks. Same to you, and please stay safe. 
Now, Jill, before I wrap up here, I should also remind our listeners that with increased mail delivery, that means there are more opportunities for porch pirates and thieves to ruin your holidays. So we don't want that happening. I'm going to share this little clip courtesy of the Vancouver Police Department. This Christmas, don't let thieves ruin your holidays. If you are out Christmas shopping, be careful when storing purchases in your car. As people go about their shopping this holiday season, criminals are shopping too and looking for an opportunity. Help stop theft from auto by following some of these suggestions. Lock items in your trunk. Do not leave any possessions visible in your car. Try not to make multiple trips to your car to drop off your shopping. Disable your trunk latch so your trunk cannot be opened from inside the car. Report suspicious people to police. This holiday season, let's make life hard for thieves. Hey, Vancouver police, you're coming with me. All right, uh, some very timely advice and tips to make things go very smoothly on this strange, strange year.